Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of floral elegance. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about Ikebana. Ikebana? Ike. Ike what now? Bana. Ikebana? Ikebana. Ikebana is the Japanese art of flower arranging. And as we said, I believe, at the end of the last episode, Paul and I went into this knowing almost nothing about Ikebana, but... I knew it existed, and that's about it. Yeah, I knew that, you know, they arranged some flowers, and I guess they're supposed to look pretty or something. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. After doing this research, it's, it's pretty cool and much more involved than I realized. I'm an expert compared to Paul two weeks ago. <laughs> Good. You know, it reminded me a lot of the bonsai episode that we did. There's a lot of focus on form and lines and balance and like miniaturization. They're kind of a lot of the That's same really elements. Interesting. I kept thinking it was reminding me of the Japanese gardens mm. episode for the same thing. Yeah. Borrowed scenery or minimalism or whatever. Definitely. It all kind of goes back to that Japanese aesthetic. You know, there are a lot of these same types of elements that are brought into all these different art forms. So Ikebana means, I've seen it translated as arranging flowers, but also translated as making flowers alive. Yeah, or giving life to flowers. Because there are two parts of that word, Ike and Bana. And the Ike comes from Ikeru, which is the verb to arrange but also the verb to have life. That's such a cool double meaning. Yeah, it is. And then the bana part comes from the word hana, which means flower. That's what always gets me about Japanese. They like to combine two words, but then they'll change the first letter of the second word. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, not quite sure if that is what I think. It, oh, is that hana? Is that related to flower? But it's actually bana, so I'm not really sure. But I'm a noob at Japanese, so that's probably my fault. You're good. But I mean, I noticed that like, you know, with like, with like sushi, if it's like a certain type of sushi, it'll be like whatever sushi. Right. Yeah, they're always changing that and it uh, makes it more confusing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Realizing that can definitely help in figuring out words sometimes. Yeah. If it was Ikehana, I feel like that'd be such a giveaway. Oh, maybe that's something to do with flowers, right? Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's, uh, I guess it just, it feels like it usually just makes the word a little bit easier to pronounce. I'm sure that's what it or is. Or maybe like the, the very origins of that type of thing is probably just naturally when people are speaking, they speak quickly and in the easiest way. Like, it's like contractions. Yes, that's what I was thinking too. It's kind of like a contraction. Yeah. But instead of skipping a sound, they're saying like an easier or softer sound well but with ikebana it's almost like they're making it the opposite of soft the h would be softer than the b yeah anyway anyway moving on <laughs> um so ikebana is also known as kado which is the way of flowers <laughs> i like that yeah so if you've heard of bushido we talked about bushido in our samurai episode that is the way of the warrior so that do part is the way of, basically. So bushido is the way of the warrior. Kado is the way of flowers. And it sounds like that term kado is actually preferred over ikebana in Japan these days. You're more likely to hear that. Oh. Also, I love this. Kado, or ikebana, 
is also considered one of the three classical Japanese arts of refinement. The other two are kodo, the way of fragrance, which is about appreciating incense, and chado, which is the way of tea. Cha is tea. That one has to do with the Japanese tea ceremony. So if you're into those three, flower arranging, incense, and tea, kado, kodo, and chado, you're pretty much as refined as you can get. Like you're a really high class person. Yeah, I saw that classification too. And besides the Halloween episode, how many episodes in a row have there been with a top three list from Japan? Keeps coming up. But uh, yeah, that's cool. It's really one of like the top classy skills to have. Yeah. And I was surprised at just how deep the rabbit hole goes in the world of Ikebana because there are so many different styles and schools of Ikebana these days. Like we're, we're going to cover the basics as we normally do, but if you want to read about how all these styles evolved and who was involved in these evolutions and all that kind of stuff, there are so many resources out there and we'll, we'll guide you to some of those later. But you know, if you wanted to dig real, real deep, you totally could. Yeah, when I started doing research for this episode, I was like, oh, let me try to make sense of the schools. And it was like, there were so yeah. many and it just kept going. I was like, oh, okay, all right. What about the styles? And then like there that too, too. And I was like, okay, I can't, we're going to have to, I'm going to have to like back further up to get an overview that I can actually make sense of and deliver in a one hour-ish podcast. Right. I mean, you could do, Instead of one episode, you could do an entire series of episodes. You could do a whole podcast about Ikebana if you wanted. That's uh, Jason and I in the future. <laughs> Welcome to Ikebana, episode 56. <laughs> yeah. This time we're talking about this style of Ikebana. <laughs> an Ikebana school is headed by an Iemoto, founder or grandmaster. So if you see uh, Iemoto of Ikebana, you know that they're uh, very well regarded. That was my fun fact. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, shall we get to history, Paul? Let's do it. So the earliest origins of Ikebana seem a little murky, as things tend to be when you're going back over you know, 1,500 years or whatever. But it sounds like the most basic elements of Ikebana came over from China along with Buddhism. Surprise! Another one of those. Like, just that happens with so many things in traditional Japanese culture. Yep. Uh, so, around the sixth century from China along with Buddhism. And of course, the first people to really get into it were the aristocracy. Again, very familiar story. And that connection with Buddhism was really the driving force behind this art form for a long time. Early on, it became common to offer flowers at Buddhist altars. And I got the impression that maybe that's kind of the main, the core of this idea that came from China with Buddhism is just that, you know, flowers are closely tied with Buddhism. They are offerings at Buddhist altars. Yeah. Right. It's, you know, we say, oh, it came, the idea originally came over from China, but what we know as Ikebana today, 99% of it's been refined and developed in Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the beginning and then for a long time, 
the art of flower arranging didn't really have much deeper meaning besides just sticking some flowers in a vase to use as offerings at temples and shrines. Like there wasn't a lot of structure or formality around how this was supposed to happen. But you know how Japan loves to refine and perfect things, and they definitely did that with Ikebana. So these first, more structured arrangements used a system called Shinohana, which means central flower arrangement. So in this arrangement, you would start with a big branch in the middle, and then you would have three or five flowers around that, usually in a symmetrical arrangement. So this style appeared in religious art around the 14th century, and it seemed to me that this is the time period where you would start to see what we might call the origins of Ikebana as we know it today. Like, this is when they started refining it into having all of these rules and a focus on form. Yeah, at this point, they were already using distant scenery and creating foreground and background and senses of depth. They were already getting into some of these ideas. Exactly. And this is where we see those pieces that really tie in a lot with the ideas behind bonsai and the Japanese gardens. We start to see the encapsulation of natural landscapes. You're taking this landscape from the real world outside and you're trying to miniaturize that and represent it at a much smaller scale. Another important element is this idea of depth. With bonsai, there's a front and a back side of the tree, and you want to think about which branches are sticking forwards and which ones are going back. In gardens, you have the middle ground, the foreground, and in the flower arranging, the big branch in the middle of the arrangement might represent the distant scenery, and then you'd have a mid-sized blossom for the middle distance, and then you have some smaller flowers to represent the foreground. So even though it's all together in this one arrangement, you have symbolism and a sense of depth, and you're representing something much bigger. So over the next couple centuries, flowers continued to play a big part in Buddhism as offerings, and even some Buddhist scriptures were actually named after flowers. For example, the Flower Garland Sutra, or maybe you've heard of the Lotus Sutra. Flowers are big in Buddhism. Around the 13 to 1500s, you started to see something called the tokonoma. Paul, you're familiar with the tokonoma? No. Uh, You may not have heard the word so much, but I bet you know what this thing is. We're talking about this decorative alcove that you often see in traditional Japanese rooms, even these days. Ah, yeah, and the rooms you like, the formal room you host people. You'll have your little alcove that you can put uh, pieces of art in and whatnot. Exactly. Maybe you'd have a scroll Maybe sometimes you might have a bonsai tree in there. Mm-hmm. In this time period, 13 to 1500s, people started using flower arrangements to decorate these spaces as well. And of course, flowers continued to be used in things like Buddhist altars. There was also some Shinto influence. And apparently, more recently, I saw that historians have come to believe that the idea of the Yori Shiro might be the origin of modern Ikebana. Do you remember? That's the object that houses a kami or god, an object that can kind of attract these spirits. So Ikebana, you could think of the flowers as a yorishiro. Okay. You're trying to attract the kami and give them a place to hang out. And over time, ideas about these flower arrangements continued to evolve, and 
all those many different schools that we referenced started popping up around the end of the 15th century. One important figure in the development of Ikebana was the eighth shogun, Ashikaga Yoshimasa. He was a patron of the arts and a great promoter of the tea ceremony and Ikebana. He even ended up abdicating his position to devote his time fully to the arts, and he developed concepts that would then go on to contribute to the formation of the formal rules of Ikebana. Yeah, he really pushed the idea that these flowers that you're placing as offerings, like that should happen at all ceremonial occasions. These flowers are important, and when you're offering them, you don't just throw something together, you know, you got to show respect for the kami, so you need to be very careful and your arrangements should be products of a lot of attention and time and careful consideration. It was also around this time that the idea of representing the three elements of heaven, human, and earth with your Ikebana presentation started to become more popular. This is also around the time the Ikebana started to divide into these two distinct branches. You got Rika and Nageirebana. The Rika style is a more stiff, formal, decorative style, whereas Nageirebana is considered to be a bit more natural. There's more of an emphasis on simplicity. Those two styles seem to be have going back and forth over time. One's more popular than the other one, and then the other one, just exactly. based on the feelings of the day. Right. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that all of Japan's most famous generals, including a name you might recognize, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, mm-hmm. he's one of those three great unifiers of Japan, all these famous generals practiced Ikebana. Can you imagine American military generals doing that? You walk in and, and a general is making a flower arrangement and he's just like, you know, I just do this because it really calms my mind and I feel like it, make, it lets me make clearer decisions on the battlefield. Hey, I don't think you would be likely to see that. Yeah. I think you'd be more likely to see maybe they'd be playing like chess or something like that. <laughs> maybe. I just thought that was a really interesting contrast between the two cultures. Like, that it's was. Just it was hard just to like all the generals just did that. Mm-hmm. So during the Edo period, which began in the 1600s, there were a bunch of books published about Ikebana. And it said that at the end of the 1600s, this is when Ikebana reached its highest degree of perfection as an art. And both of those main styles, the Rika and Nageirebana, were practiced in this period. In the Meiji period, which started in 1868, the Meiji government made efforts to make sure that Japanese women were educated and trained to be, quote, good wives and wise mothers. And this education, they decreed, included Ikebana, even though historically before that, it had actually always been considered a male art form. And it's still many men practice it. It's men and women now. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, Even at that time, though, I saw that women were not really allowed to, like, innovate. They were kind of taught the prescribed ways of doing this, and they were supposed to follow the rules, you know? Yeah. Interesting. The oldest international organization, Ikebana International, was founded in 1956 and has since spread around the world, spreading Ikebana to other cultures as well. Yeah, it was actually founded by an American woman. 
Ellen Gordon Allen was her name. And uh, Princess Takamato is the honorary president of the organization. They have a okay, that that one got me so far down a rabbit hole. Yeah. Because I was like, who's Princess Takamato? And I clicked on it and I read all about her. And then I read about her deceased husband, and then I read about her kids, and then I read about like the other Imperial family members, and right. an hour and a half later, I was like, oh yeah, I was I was researching Ikebana. <laughs> Anything worth worth mentioning? Anything super interesting? It's, it's kind of sad. Her husband uh, died of a heart attack young, hmm. in like 2002. How old is she now? I put her around 60. I guess that's not what you might uh, envision when you think princess. Yeah, I think her husband was brother to the current emperor or something like that. Hmm. Her husband was like seventh in line or something to the throne. Two of her daughters married commoners and uh, abdicated all their imperial benefits. Hmm. That's been a big thing in the news lately. Yeah. All right, we got to get off this, this right. track. <laughs> um. So this, this organization, Ikebana International, they have 143 chapters now in over 50 countries. They have more than 7,000 members, and they have a pretty great motto, I think. Do you see their motto? I don't remember. Friendship through flowers. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's sweet. Yeah, and like a lot of these styles and schools, you know, they have very specific rules and stuff, but this organization doesn't endorse any specific type of Ikebana. It's... It's all about that sense of community. They welcome members from all schools. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Should we go do some Ikebana, Jason? I would try it, yeah. Okay. We'll talk at the end about how you can get involved if you're interested, too. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, these days there are tons of schools of Ikebana, like a crazy number of them. And, Paul, like you said earlier... Each school is normally led by an Iemoto, a Grand Master, and that title is actually passed down through the generations of the same family. An Ikebana school is a family thing. Uh, the oldest school is called Ikenobo. Did you read much about that one? A bit. Supposedly it goes back to the Heian period. I don't know. I saw a lot of conflicting sources. Some places said it goes back to the 15th century, some sources said it went all the way back to the 8th or 7th century, even. Wow. I'm not sure. Maybe they have different ideas of, like, what the origins, you know, what that means. Yeah. Really. Yeah, right. But, uh, so these days, there are about 3,000 schools in Japan, and even thousands more around the world. And even over the last few decades, new schools have been founded. So, obviously, we won't have time to go into each one of those, but we'll cover kind of the overarching elements that they have in common. So let's talk a little bit about the theories behind Ikebana. Ikebana is very heavily tied to Buddhist philosophy. So you're going to see a lot of Buddhist ideas reflected in the flower arrangements. Right. And the, in Buddhism, the idea of preserving life is important. So I felt like that kind of went back to that double meaning of the word ikebana. You can translate it as giving life to flowers. That's kind of a Buddhist thing. So I guess if you want to perform some ikebana, you want to arrange some flowers, you're going to want to start with a vase, right? Mm -hmm. How are you going to choose your vase? 
The thing that is most important to seek in a vase is a shape that will best prolong the life of the flowers. Exactly. Back to that giving life to flowers idea. There are often even vases designed specifically for a certain type of flower. Yeah, you're often going to see a wide open mouth with the idea that more oxygen entering through the neck gives the plant more oxygen to stay alive. Right. And this is one of the big differences between Western flower arranging and Ikebana. Like in the West, I feel like our vases generally go up. You know, they're pretty tall and they have pretty narrow necks because we use the neck to support the stem of the flowers. You know, you don't really see the stems all that much in Western flower arrangements. The flowers are the main focus. And a lot of times they're all bunched together. So you don't even really see the stems. They're kind of hidden underneath all these blossoms. But that's not at all the case in Ikebana. The vases are going to be low and wide because you want to display the entire plant. It's going to be the stem, the leaves, like everything goes into creating this sculpture almost. And with that water being exposed, that's also supposed to make it look fresh and vital, like it contributes to this whole feeling that you're trying to convey through your arrangement. Yeah. So if they don't have a narrow neck to hold up all these flowers, Paul, how are they going to get the flowers to stand up? <laughs> Basically, a metal pin cushion. It's like a flat, round piece of metal with a bunch of pins coming up out of it. And then you stick the stem of the flowers on there. You sometimes even cut the stem of the flower in like a little X shape to spread it out a little bit. And then you can wedge it in there. Mm-hmm. I saw that little disc can be called a Kenzan or a frog in English. Or <laughs> a frog. <laughs> Not sure where that word came from. Doesn't really look like a frog. No, but it works remarkably well. Yeah, I was surprised at how like, they can really hold up even big, heavy-looking branches, you know? Yeah, it was the one thing I was the most curious about. I was like, how do they keep everything in place? Mm -hmm. I just didn't understand, but it works. It does. Another thing you want to consider when you're picking out your vase is, of course, you want to think about the shape, the color, the material of your vase, and consider how that's going to interact with your flowers and how that fits into whatever you're trying to convey through your arrangement. Very similar to how you might pick out a tray for your bonsai tree. Bronze vases are very popular because they are the color of earth. You know, you get a very natural kind of feel from that. Uh, bamboo is also often used because it has a pretty neutral color and straight, clean lines. Even considering the season might affect uh, which vase you use. Yeah, we've talked about how seasons are important in many different aspects of Japanese culture and art. Mm -hmm. For example, in summer, you might use a low flat vase, which shows more water exposed. Okay, so let's say you've picked out your vase, and now you want to think about how you're going to arrange these the actual flowers themselves. Well, like I said, it's it's actually really similar to making a sculpture. So you're not just thinking about the blossoms. You're thinking about every piece of this. You want to take into consideration the shape of each element, the lines that they're making, the form and balance of this whole image that you're creating. So like if you have an entire branch of a tree, you might want to trim off little 
twigs that are going in a direction that don't make sense with your vision, you're going to consider which direction this branch is pointing. How does it interact with the rest of the elements? I've seen some really cool arrangements that incorporate these long blades of grass that are sticking up, but they're not just sticking up randomly. You know, you can shape them with your fingers depending on, you know, do you want them perfectly straight? Do you want them going up uh, in the background? Or maybe you want one kind of leaning off to one side if you're trying to create an impression of wind. I heard a lot of emphasis on keeping everything natural. Mm -hmm. Like, don't come up with the lines in your head and then try to make the plants fit them. You've got to look at the plants and find their natural lines in a way that fits everything in a pleasing way. Mm. You've got to find the existing shapes of nature and bring that out within your design. It's not bending nature to your will. It's showing off the beauty of nature. Okay. And, you know, we talked about how all, there are all these different styles and specific styles will actually have specific shapes and elements that they want to go for. Like there are these prescribed formulas for how to create an arrangement in a certain style. So Paul, did you see any of these diagrams where they show you specifically like, okay, there's this main branch here that sticks up in the back and then there's a shorter one that you cut to this specific length and it's leaning at precisely this many degrees to the left? Yeah, I think that's how they teach it to start with. Mm-hmm. You know, this is about ratios and angles. Yeah. You know, you put the first one straight up and it's three times the length of the vessel that's holding it, you know, and then the second one is forward and left at 45 degree angle and it's two thirds the height, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And this is how you create this specific design. Exactly. Another thing to consider is in your choice of plants, each flower or branch or blade of grass that you choose is going to be imbued with all sorts of symbolism. Mm-hmm. There's something called the language of flowers, hanakotoba, where each plant has a specific meaning depending on the color of it, its height, whether there are thorns or not on the stem. Even combinations of flowers can have different meanings. There are certain flowers that are considered lucky or unlucky. That's really cool. There's a whole language of flowers. I I thought that was really neat. Yeah, that one reminded me a lot of the kimono episode. We talked about how like when you're dressing somebody up in a kimono, every little element says something, you know, whether it's the pattern on the fabric or the hair accessories or the obi. Yeah. So one example of the flower language is what color you use, right? So if you use red flowers, that's considered to be unlucky because it's considered morbid, often used for a funeral. Yeah, it also symbolizes fire. Yeah, which is unlucky because traditionally Japanese houses are made of timber, which burn very easily. Mm -hmm. The numbers of flowers (laughs) are important too. Odd numbers are considered lucky in Japan. Yeah. Even numbers are unlucky. So Never er- an even number. Right. Earlier I mentioned you might have three or five flowers, but not four. Four is a bad number. You don't want four flowers. Yeah, you want uh, 
you don't want equal balance. You want everything to be odd and just off a little bit to get that nature feeling. Yeah, symmetry is not common in Japanese art. Like yeah. asymmetry is considered more pleasing. I heard this because it's more natural. Like you right. go in nature and it doesn't, it never mirrors itself. It's always a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So the artist's intentions can really come out through how the arrangement is made and what color combinations are used or what shapes of the plants and what lines they use can be used to convey emotions and other feelings as well. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting that if you're giving a flower arrangement as a gift, it should be given when the flowers are still in bud because once those flowers have blossomed, is too late because you want the recipient to be able to experience the pleasure of seeing them open. There's so much consideration in every little bit of this. That was one of the coolest things I think I learned about this whole thing. Because I never would have considered that coming from our Western perspective. Like, no, you give them the flower when it's fully in bloom at its prettiest. Yeah. But that's like a really cool take on it. I, you know, I don't know which one's better or worse or whatever, but it's just a totally different way of thinking about it. Yeah. It's also cool that you can arrange flowers in specific ways to almost like tell a story or suggest certain occasions. For example, if someone is leaving home, you might want to incorporate willow branches because those are supposed to symbolize hope of a long and happy life. Or if somebody's going on a long trip, you can form the branches into a complete circle to symbolize a safe return. Yeah, isn't that cool? The flower language. Like you could just walk by someone's home and you could see what kind of flowers they have and you're like, oh, they're taking a journey. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'd be inside the home, but just being able to tell what's going on in their life based on the arrangement of flowers that they have. Yeah. And Paul, you mentioned, uh, you know, fire was a, a big bad thing yeah. in Japan. You can actually uh, use white flowers to signify water. So like for a housewarming, if you use white flowers, you know, it symbolizes water because the water protects your new home from fire. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, you got to be careful with white though, because white is also the color of death in Japan. We've talked about that. Yep. So you might use white for funerals. Uh, for, for that case, you might even include some dead leaves or branches. I kind of like that. I want to see more of those arrangements with white and dead stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting that's kind of cool still thinking of dead things after the halloween season you know <laughs> it's yeah. all fresh in the head yeah green is a fun color too if somebody inherited a bunch of money you can celebrate that by using evergreen plants or plants that have long lives to convey a hope that the money will last forever yeah that's cool i guess that's more about the longevity of the plants than it is about the color yeah, I guess. Uh, another important element that I, we kind of touched on is uh, these generally aren't crowded arrangements. That's another big difference between Japanese and Western flower arrangements is you're not bunching a bunch of flowers together. It's about quality over quantity. Yeah, with the ideas of minimalism, you'll often trim off a lot of the leaves and little branches sticking out to leave just like the most important lines and forms that you want to show. Yeah, you want to retain the essence of that plant, but you don't need you don't need it to be very busy. 
Back to the seasons for a second. As we said, seasons are really important. March is considered a windy month, so you might want to bend your branches or flowers in a way that suggests they're swaying in the wind. You know, they're not going to be standing straight up. Maybe they're all tilted in one direction a bit. So with all of this symbolism and intention behind every little thing that you're doing, I saw that to a lot of people, this practice can be considered very spiritual or almost like meditation, like a meditation on nature. Yeah, some practitioners insist upon doing it in quiet. They've got to be like a total peace to be able to make Ikebana. Mm-hmm. Others don't mind as much, but it's because they want to be in that perfect state to like draw out the natural beauty. Yeah. It seemed like that kind of thing, those kinds of ideas might depend on the school a bit. Like some schools emphasize certain elements more than others. You might have yeah. slightly different ways of doing things. Or but, even the personality of the person. Sure. Um, and of course, you know, you got the schools and then you got the styles. And a lot of the styles can be pretty different too. Uh, some of them actually bring in more elements like dirt and rocks and moss to create even more of a, a natural scene there. But some styles just stick with the plants. You know, you just got the water and then some plants sticking up out of the water. That reminds it, me even more of bonsai. Yeah. You know, putting a rock and some moss in there. Definitely. Yeah, so they all have their different rules about how shapes should be laid out, what elements to use, all that kind of stuff. So Ikebana is pretty cool. How do we get involved? Well, we mentioned Ikebana International in the history section, that big organization. It seems to me that that would be one great way to get involved. Uh, You can become a member at their website, ikebanahq.org. Did you see they've got a local chapter here? No. Like a Twin Cities? There's a Minneapolis. Nice. Yeah. That would be interesting to check out. Yeah, they said everybody, we're welcome to email them and they'll tell us all about like when their next uh, exhibit or display or whatever is. That's awesome. We should do that. We probably should. Some of the benefits of membership include issues of a publication. They have three issues annually. Uh, You also get online access to past issues of their newsletters. They have world conventions and regional conferences that you can participate in. There are 143 chapters you can join, any of those. There are monthly meetings you could participate in. They have demonstrations, exhibitions, workshops, etc. So look up your nearest chapter. It looks like a lot of the chapters themselves actually have their own websites that you can also check out. Yeah. If you're in Japan, some of the larger Ikebana schools offer classes in English if you're in Tokyo. Nice. So you get, I think it was about 50 bucks. You could get some uh, personal training. Sounds that'd be fun. to me, definitely. Yeah, that'd be a great experience. Spend an afternoon learning how to do flower arrangement. Yeah. Um, the Ikenobo School, that's that oldest school. They actually have a bunch of chapters too. There's a list of their chapters on their website, ikenobo.com. That's I-K-E-N-O-B-O.com. They also have a special member page that you can get access to if you join. Also on their website, they have a calendar of Ikebana events, like exhibitions that you could attend in Japan. There's also an international event schedule. They actually have these events where they send out a professor from Ikenoba headquarters to teach people around the world. 
That's so cool. Yeah. There are links to info about trial lessons that you can do if you're just a beginner. Uh, most of those lessons, I think, are in Japan. And, you know, that's just the website for one school. And there's so many schools. So if you look around, you know, if there's a specific style of Ikebana, a specific school that you're interested in, there's probably a group that you could join or some events that you can attend. If we ever get around to doing some Ikebana, we will definitely post the pictures on Instagram. For sure. Yeah. Our Instagram is at SJP Podcast. If you're interested in checking out some pictures of all sorts of Japanese stuff, I try to line up the pictures with the release date of our episodes. So, you know, usually you'll see some relevant stuff on there. You can also reach out to us there. We always love to hear from our listeners. Absolutely. If you haven't been to our website, it's pretty nice. And we've even got a nice travel tip section there that's got a whole bunch of things that can help you out if you're traveling to Japan. We've mentioned them in some other episodes, but uh, really useful stuff. Yeah, I, I hope those travel tips, travel tools come in very handy to people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's exciting. I hope we're getting close to the time where we can all start planning trips again. So You're more hopeful than I am, buddy. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But I certainly hope so, yes. I think we all hope so. Yeah. I'll pour one for you tonight, everyone out there like me that's been trying to plan a trip to Japan for the last year and a half. <laughs> yeah. I saw so many posts online from people that were like, oh, I, I, I'm planning a trip for like May 2021. We should be good by then, right? <laughs> I feel bad for it. There are so many of those people that were really hoping to get to Japan this year and... I just hope happen. everyone's getting, uh, how was it, the insurance or whatever on their tickets where you can mm. cancel it and get your money back. Normally, I don't do that, but with so much uncertainty right now, I feel like you have to. You try to plan anything, mm -hmm. you've got to be able to cancel it if you need to. Be sure to read the fine print, though. I actually saw a post not too long ago about somebody that did buy the insurance, and then when they went to cancel, they found out, oh, the insurance doesn't cover that for some reason. <laughs> What's the point then? I don't know. <laughs> that, that's stupid. Yeah, like it only covers cancellations for specific reasons or something like that. Anyway. Global pandemic. Sorry, not on the list, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Anyway, what are we talking about next time, Paul? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about sake. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a fun one. Definitely. There's sake is very good. And I'm going to go out there. I'm going to say underrated. Underrated. Change my mind, anybody. But I'm pretty confident sake, underrated. Agreed. I feel like most people don't really, like when they go to the liquor store, sake doesn't really cross their mind. It's just like if you're at a sushi restaurant or something, like, oh, there's sake on the menu. Maybe I'll get some of that. But there's a whole world of sake out there. So many different types of sake. And by the end of the next episode, you're going to be an expert. You're going to know exactly what to go pick out. Yeah, sake is almost like another type of wine. As much variety as there is in wine, you can find in sake too. Totally. That will be a good one. But you'll find out on the next episode. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for listening. See you next time.
and it's the same thing I think with listening to my voice. Other people are like, oh, you have a nice voice, Paul. And I'm like, I sound so dumb. No, I hate man. how I see you know, like You're... listening to yourself is always weird, right? People love how deep and soothing your voice is, Paul. You got to focus in on those parts of it. Does that mean I should talk more? Is that a license to just like talk all the time? Well, you know, there's that old saying, leave them wanting more. To there's, a, there's a balance there. <laughs> that was a nice way of saying that, Jason. 